0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We are continuing in our sermons series on the book of Romans. So if you are in Romans chapter 3, the passage we're going to look at this morning begins in verse 27 of chapter 3 and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 12. So it's a fairly lengthy passage. Um, before we get into this, that there's, a, there's a question that I think a lot of us ask uh, in our hearts and in our minds, particularly when we get into a social situation like we're all in right now here at church coming to New Life on Sunday morning. Uh, it might not be a question that you ask explicitly in your mind, and there are some people who perhaps ask this question more than others, But there's a question that I think all of us are are thinking about. There's something that we're we're always wanting to know about those who are around us. And the question is this. Do you like me? isn't, Isn't that true? I mean, maybe you don't really say it in those words, but isn't that a concern that we all have? We get around other people, even other brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we're concerned about is whether we're liked. We want to know, do you you approve of me? Am I acceptable to you? Am I okay? Do you like me? Now that is not a bad question to ask, I, I don't think, but I want to suggest this morning that there is a more important question that we ought to be asking, a more central question, and it's not so much what do others think of us, it's What does God think of you? Have you asked that question? What does God think of you? Does God approve of you? Does God accept you? Does God like you? (laughs) This question, perhaps the most important question that you can ask in your entire life, are you acceptable to God, is answered in this thing we call the doctrine of justification the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine is what Martin Luther called um, the chief heart and cornerstone of the church. It's what John Calvin called the main hinge upon which religion turns. This is an absolutely central, primary, important doctrine for us to consider. It's theological. We don't always hear a lot about big theological words like this, but these are words and concepts that can absolutely transform and change the way you live your Christian life. Sinclair Ferguson said this, probably more trouble is caused in the Christian life by an inadequate or mistaken view of justification than any other. When the child of God loses his sense of peace with God, finds his concern for others dried up, or generally finds his sense of the sheer goodness of God diminished, it is from this fountain, the doctrine of justification, that he has ceased to drink. Is that where you are spiritually today, friends? You're finding your concern for others dried up, you just find your sense of God's goodness diminished, you just feel cold about God and your relationship to Him. My hope is that as we explore this passage this morning and consider what is meant by justification that your faith will be revived. We are going through this sermon series uh, called, The Greatest Letter Ever Written, Romans, The Greatest Letter Ever Written, and we're going through this one passage at a time. Two weeks ago when I preached last we looked at chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, which I said was the greatest paragraph ever written in the history of humanity. And today, we're getting to what I'm going to consider the greatest doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of justification. And Paul lays this out, explains this to us in some detail, chapter 3, verse 27, through chapter 4, verse 12. So if you have that, please stand, and let me read the Word of God to us this morning. Starting with chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says this, then what becomes... Of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make Him the Father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Father in heaven, this is a rich and deep passage of your holy word, we are in great need of your spirit to give us understanding. Please help me to deliver this message in a way that brings clarity. Give to these dear people the gift of faith and repentance and love and hope as they respond to your word, to you, Lord, speaking now through your word to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The greatest doctrine in the Bible. There are more doctrines in the Bible that are very important, and actually the gospel is bigger than just the doctrine of justification. I don't mean to suggest that justification is the only thing to be said about the gospel, but there is just something really sweet about this particular doctrine. Mary and I eat these uh, ice cream cones, and um, They, uh, you know, the the whole thing is good. There's like this chocolate stuff on the top, and the ice cream's good, and and the cone is good. But when you get to the bottom, there's this big, huge chocolate chunk at the bottom of the cone. And it's always the greatest, most fulfilling part of, of eating that ice cream cone. The whole thing is good, but there's just something especially sweet. The whole gospel is good, but there is something really sweet and particularly rewarding and fulfilling about the doctrine of justification. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. First thing we want to consider, justification explained. What does this doctrine mean? What what are we talking about here? Now let me just open up by giving to you the explanation given by our shorter catechism. Um, This catechism has been developed to help us understand doctrines such as this. It's more important that we learn what the Bible says, but The Catechism does help put things in short, concise phrases for us, and here's how it defines justification. It is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith. That's a good, solid, clear explanation Of the doctrine of justification. So let me kind of unpack this and then we'll look in this passage and see how the passage supports this. Justification, first of all, look, it's an act of God. That is so important to understand. It's an act of God, it is something that God has done. It is, more specifically, something that God has declared, it's something that He has said. It's something that he has pronounced about you and me who trust in Christ. It's something that he has done, his action. And therefore, it is something that happens totally outside of us, totally outside of us. There are other doctrines that we consider that have to do what God does in us. There's the doctrine of regeneration. That's where the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. That's absolutely essential. There's the doctrine of sanctification, which talks about how God changes us over the course of our Christian life. That's very important also. Both of those doctrines have to do with what God does inside of us. Justification is different than that, and it's very important to understand. It has to do with what God is doing outside of us. It's like the difference between a surgeon and a judge, A surgeon, a heart surgeon, what does he do? He opens up your heart and he fixes your heart and he sews you back up. He does something inside you. A judge doesn't do that. A judge doesn't perform surgery on you. A judge simply declares something about you. He or she makes a judicial statement that affects your status before the law. That's what justification is about. It's God, the judge, making a declaration about whether he approves of us or not, about whether he accepts us or not. But in any case, it's something that's done outside of us. A judge makes a pronouncement about a person, and when that judge brings down that gavel and says, this person is not guilty, that person's status totally changes. And now he or she is considered not guilty before the law of the land. And that's what's happening in the doctrine of justification. And so given this fact that God is doing this outside of us, this is not something to which you and I contribute in any way. We do not bring our works or our religion or our morality or our efforts before God as a way of getting Him to justify us. Our works are excluded. If you look at verse 28, Paul says this very clearly, and he's repeated this. He says it many times. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 20 also, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. This is something entirely outside of us, something that God is doing. And what Paul does here is he gives us two examples as he gets into chapter 4 to to prove this, to make his case about how this can be the case. Two examples. The first one is the example of Abraham. And he talks about Abraham in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. And the reason he brings up Abraham is because Abraham is this great patriarch, this great forefather of the covenant community in Israel, highly respected. And what Paul's thinking is if there's anybody who could lay claim to being justified by works, it's got to be him. So that's what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather? Our forefather, according to the flesh. If Abraham was justified by works, then he would be able to boast about something. He'd be able to say, hey, look, I'm justified because of what I've done and how faithful I've been and how godly I am. But Paul says, but not before God. Even Abraham as faithful and godly as he was has nothing to boast about before God. And then Paul goes on in verse 3 and he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. What does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15:6 which we heard just a moment ago during our confession of sin. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Will Abraham have any reason to hope in his good works to be justified? Paul says no. No. Abraham was justified in an entirely different way. He was justified when he believed the promise of God spoken to him. And when he believed it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see that phrase? Counted to him. That's a a hugely important word for us to understand. We talked about propitiation, remember, a couple of weeks ago. That's a profoundly important thing to understand. But this too, and if you'll notice, this is repeated throughout this passage. Um, look at verse 5. The end of verse 5. <clears throat> His faith is counted as righteousness. Look at verse um, 9. Verse 9. In the middle of verse 9, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Um, look at the end of verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to him as well. What, what, what is this concept? What, what is this idea of counting righteousness? The theological word for this is called imputation. Now, do you remember when I gave you that catechism question, if I can go backward here? Um, Justification of the act of God's free grace. He pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteousness in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This is the shorter catechism, not the longer catechism. This is the catechism that was designed for children. So if you're thinking, oh, imputation, that's such a big word, I don't know what to do with that. This was for children centuries ago. We should understand imputation. An imputation means this, to credit, reckon, or put to one's account. That's what imputation is. It's when you credit to somebody's account. You put something in somebody's account. When I get my paycheck from this church, I do not get a, you know, a paper check that I hold in my hand and take to the bank. M- my payment is simply just credited to my bank account. It's just, Mark just puts it in there. That's kind of an idea of imputation. Except, imputation in the gospel, imputation as Paul is talking about it here, is, is different. Because if you look at verse 4, notice this distinction. He says, This counting to him as righteousness is not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If the person is expecting this imputation in response to work, then it becomes a wage. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, credited, considered to be righteousness. This is to the one who does not work, but has faith. So here's the difference, and when I get my paycheck, it's credited to my account, but but I'm being paid for the work that I do for this church. So maybe a better example of imputation would be this. What if I looked at my account and I noticed that there was money in there from Ball State University or from Ontario Corporation? People for whom I do not work. I'm not employed by them. But what if they were to credit my account with a certain amount of money? That's the idea that Paul is giving here. There's a putting into the moral account of Abraham and imputing to his account, not because of the work he has done, but on account of faith. His faith is counted as righteousness. Not anything that he's putting forth as any kind of reason for why God should justify him. It's simply through faith. Totally outside of us without any consideration for whether we're good people or bad people or moral people or religious people or church-going people or believing people or merciful people, it's all irrelevant to the question of justification. And you can see this made even more in verse 6. No, verse 5. To the one who does not work, but trust in him who, what? Justifies the ungodly. God's not waiting for you to get godly so that he can justify you. He's not waiting for you to reach a certain level of godliness so he can say, okay, I think that's pretty good, I'll accept that, I now pronounce you not guilty. No, God justifies the ungodly. He he justifies the wicked. He justifies the rebellious. And the point Paul is making here is that there is this imputation, this crediting, this giving of the righteousness that He achieved for us in Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. Now, just to kind of clarify this, a question that I ask people quite a bit, and a lot of you have been asked this question actually by me or some of the elders of this church, what we ask very often is, if you were to die today and to appear before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And the answer, the the reason that we ask that is because it really helps us understand how people are thinking about the gospel. The answer given to that sometimes suggests a misunderstanding of justification. For instance, some people answer that question and say, well, I think God should let me into heaven because I've done the best I can. Now, Now, what is that? Isn't that very clearly a person hoping to be justified on the basis of his or her works. But Paul has said a couple places here, no one's justified by works of the law. <laughs> That's not going to work. I've done the best I can. It's not going to work. You can't be justified that way. Other people might answer that question by saying, I believe that I'm going to get into heaven and the God shall let me into heaven because I believe in Jesus and I'm following him and doing the best that I can. <laughs> now, that's, that's better, I think, but, but still, what's that? That's like a combination of faith and works. That's I'll be justified through my belief in Jesus, but also if I bring along some of my good works to kind of help it out, and some of the things that I've done that I'll combine with my faith and the look to God to justify me. Th- that also is not what Paul is saying here, Another answer that people might give is, I think God's going to let me into heaven or that he should let me into heaven because I have believed with all my heart, and I've believed all my life, and nothing has ever changed my faith and my belief in Jesus. Well, what is that? That's kind of faith in your faith, isn't it? (laughs) That's kind of putting your trust in your trust, That's looking to the strength of your faith to save you, to justify you. What Paul is saying here is that none of those is is what's going on here. We're talking about a righteousness completely outside of you that somebody else did. Jesus did it for you, and you can't contribute to it. You can't help Jesus out. You can't help Jesus get you into heaven. He's already done enough. And the question is whether you're willing to take that, whether you're willing to receive that. If you want assurance that God approves of you, it can only be found in a righteousness that is offered to you through Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here about Abraham. If anybody had a reason to believe he could be justified by his works, it would be him. But even he can't. He has to rely on somebody else. And you know what? You do too. And so now Paul goes on and he gives a second example. David. He gives David as an example, and this is in verses 6 through 8. Now, David is another important figure in the Old Testament. He's the, the great king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. But, you know, David had a lot to be ashamed of. Do you know that in his life? You know, David committed adultery, saw a beautiful woman, couldn't resist the temptation, had relations with her, produced a child, Became so threatened that he ended up making arrangements for that woman's husband to be killed, guilty of murder. David was guilty of adultery and murder. And so Paul brings him into this picture, I don't think, as a way of saying, here's someone who would have reason to believe that he can be justified on his own works. What Paul is doing here is saying, here's someone who has some things to be ashamed of. So what about him? Verse 6, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. What David needed to know is that those sins that he committed could be covered and could be forgiven. And that's what the gospel offers. But notice In verse 8, how this happens, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, and there's that word again, count, against whom the Lord will not count his sin, won't consider his sin. How can God do this? How can God look at an adulterer and a murderer and say, I'm just not going to count your sin against you? This is This is imputation again, but it's in the other direction. When Paul talks about Abraham, he's talking about the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but as he talks about David, he's talking about David's sins being imputed to somebody else, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He hung on the cross and shed His blood to pay for the penalty that David and everybody else who has sinned against God deserves. It's like a it's like a double imputation. It's an imputation that goes both ways. It's what's summed up here in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? David's sin imputed to Jesus. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Imputation in the other direction. The wonderful thing about the gospel is it provides a double cure for us. Not just the cure we need to have our shame lifted, but also the cure that we need to know that we have the glory and the righteousness that we need to be accepted and approved and liked by God. John Stott sums it up like this. Paul writes in Romans 4, both of God not imputing sin to sinners, although it actually belongs to them, and of his imputing righteousness to us, although it doesn't belong to us. This is a wonderful doctrine, friends. That this is, this is, you know, in Christianity Explored, they always say, if you don't think the gospel is the most wonderful thing you've ever heard, you don't understand it. You're not getting it. And, and here we have it again. To know that our sins are imputed to Christ and to know that His righteousness is imputed to us is what the, justi- the doctrine of justification is, is explaining to us. So uh, let me just kind of apply it quickly this way. When you ask the question, does God approve of me? Does God accept me? Am I okay before God? H- here's the common mistake that Christians, I'm talking about Christians, Here's the mistake that Christians make. They they think, well, how, how did I do this past week? Was I reading my Bible? Was I praying? Did I give money to the church? Did I share my gospel with somebody? We look at our performance as a way of determining whether we think God approves of us. Or we just look inside at our feelings. How do I feel about God? I don't seem to have the feeling about God that I used to have. I don't seem to be excited about Him as I used to have. I have this feeling of distance from him, and our hearts are growing cold toward him. And so we think somehow maybe God doesn't approve of me because my feelings don't seem to be indicating that he's approving of me. But here's what justification is saying. Your performance has nothing to do with it, and your feelings have nothing to do with it either. Your feelings about God don't influence his justifying grace of you. His justification doesn't fluctuate up and down along with your feelings. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't revoke his justification because you don't obey the works of the law enough. It's not the way it works. It's something totally outside you. Justification, it's not even something you experience, really. It's not something you experience. It's not something you feel. You don't feel justification. You believe it. It's a big difference. You don't feel it, you believe it. And one of the challenges for us as Christians all the time is simply believing what the Bible says to be true about us, that our sins are imputed to Christ and Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. Well, two other points here, two other points, justification offered, justification explained, we just went through, justification offered. In other words, to whom is this great doctrine offered? To whom is it available? Um, As a review, remember that Paul has been doing a lot of comparing between Jews and Gentiles. Those are the two kind of main groups of people that he has in mind. The Jews are sometimes referred to as those who are circumcised. You see that word quite often in Romans. And I refer to them as the religious people, the church-going people So that's one group, Jews, circumcised, religious. The other group are the Gentiles, and they are referred to as uncircumcised in the Bible. They are the so-called non-religious people. Maybe we could say the people outside the community of faith, the people who don't go to church on any regular basis. So God has these, or Paul has these two groups of people in mind, Jews and Gentiles, religious and non-religious. And in verse 9, Paul asks a question. And the question is this, is this blessing of the greatest doctrine in the Bible, justification, is this offered only for the circumcised? You see this in verse 9? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? In other words, can can people who are outside the church, the the non-religious person, The person has always been considered kind of the outsider. Can that person be justified? To be justified, do you need to become an insider first? Do you need to be baptized first? Do you need to join the church and become a member first? Do you need to jump through all the religious hoops first in order to be justified? That's the question Paul is asking in verse 9. And... In verses 10 through 12, he brings up Abraham again as an example or as a way to advance his argument. So, um, this is kind of a a difficult uh, few verses here. So, let me see if I can explain this. In verse 10, um, Paul begins to talk about this issue of circumcision. Now, Circumcision was a sign that was given to the people of Israel as a sign, given to the men, uh, a removal of the foreskin of men as a sign of their inclusion in the covenant community, as a sign that they are part of God's people and recipients of His promises. That was circumcision given to Jewish people and those who were converted to um, the Old Testament community of faith. And in verse 11, you'll see that Paul says something about what circumcision means. Do you see this? Verse 11, he, referring to Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now, that that sounds to me like circumcision is a sign Of the gospel. Isn't that what the gospel is, receiving righteousness by faith? What Paul says here is that's what circumcision means. There are some that say circumcision only is identifying Jewish people as members of the nation of Israel. Clearly, circumcision has a deeper spiritual significance and reality here. It's a sign of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now, in the New Testament, the sign that we give to people as a sign of the righteousness that we have by faith is baptism, so I would make the case that baptism is the replacement of circumcision. And so when you see the word circumcision here, which might not make sense to you, we don't talk about circumcision that much, just plug in the word baptism or unbaptism, and that might help kind of lead us to understand this in a better way. So here's what Paul, or yeah, Paul asks here in verse 10. He's talking in verse 10 about this righteousness that Abraham had received, this righteousness, righteousness through faith. Verse 10, he asks, how then was this counted to Abraham? How did he receive this, this uh, righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Was he righteous somehow before he got circumcised, or did he have to become circumcised in order to be righteous? And Paul's answer is very clear. It was not after, at the end of verse 10, not after, but before he was circumcised. Paul received the gift of righteousness through faith alone before he went through any kind of religious ritual or submitted to any kind of ritual, of religious responsibility or obligation. That was imposed upon him. When Abraham believed, that was in Genesis 15, 15 verse 6, that's when Abraham believed and righteousness was counted to him. It was in Genesis 17 verse 11 that Abraham was circumcised. The difference, if you do the chronology, was about 14 years between the two. What Paul is saying here is that Abraham was righteous in God's sight for about 14 years. Before He was circumcised. So, maybe you're here today for the first time. Maybe you've just been coming to New Life for a few weeks, and you're hearing about justification. You're hearing about being saved. And maybe the question that you're asking is, is it possible for me to receive this blessing? Is it possible for me to be justified? I mean, I haven't been going to this church for all these years. I haven't been putting in all the time that all these other people have been putting in. I haven't done all the things and jumped through all the hoops that all these other people have been jumping through. Can I get this too? And what Paul is saying is absolutely yes. You you can be justified right now, even if this is your very first time. You haven't been putting in your time. You still can be justified. That's the point that Paul is making here about Abraham. He didn't have to get circumcised in order to get justified. And you don't have to be baptized in order to be justified. You don't have to join a church in order to be justified. You don't have to go through a bunch of religious rituals in order to be justified. Notice what he says here in verse 11 what is the purpose of all this? Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So that righteousness can be counted to the non-religious person as well, the non-baptized person as well, the, the Muslim the atheist, the person who's been living apart from God all his or her life, hears the gospel, believes in Jesus, shifts his or her faith fully and completely to the work of Christ on the cross, justified at that very moment. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, think about this. This is just hypothetical situation. Let's just, here's what, let's think of one person who's been a devoted churchgoer, all of his life. He's 50 years old, was baptized, believed in Jesus, received the gift of justification, has been faithfully serving the church all these years, shares his faith on a regular basis, knows the Bible up and down, prays every morning and every night. Godly person. And then let's say there's a person who is a drug dealer. This person's been selling drugs to children. This person's never been to church in his entire life. And let's say just yesterday that person, by a work of the Holy Spirit, came to believe in Jesus and was justified in God's sight. Do you know that that person is just as justified as the faithful churchgoer? Absolutely no difference in the level of justification that both of those individuals enjoy. If you're kind of thinking, you know, that doesn't really sound fair to me. That doesn't really sound right to me, that somebody could just devote himself all of his life to doing well, and then one person who's been squandering his whole life believes in Jesus and is just as justified. That doesn't seem right. If that's what you're thinking, you're starting to get it. (laughs) You're starting to understand, really, the scandal of the gospel. We're talking about something that is hard to understand, something that defies our human standards of merit and obligation to be approved by God, friends. It's not about rituals. Now, does that mean the rituals aren't important? No, they are. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. The the rituals are important. It's just getting them in the proper order. It's not the rituals that justify you. It's faith and faith alone with nothing attached. And that means that if you're here for the very first time today, this wonderful doctrine is offered to you right now. You can take it right now. Believe in Jesus and be justified and know that He approves of you. That's what's being offered. One last thing. Justification applied. Justification applied. We're going to rewind here going back to the very end of chapter 3 verses 27 through 31. I know I'm doing this a little bit backwards but Um, Paul talked in verses 21 to 26 a little about justification and then he got into it in more detail in chapter 4 as we just went through. But in verses 27 to 31 at the end of chapter 3 Paul gives some very clear practical applications for what this should mean for us. This doctrine of justification. So three quick things. Number one No boasting. If we understand the doctrine of justification, we should understand that we have no grounds to boast. Verse 27 What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. It's because it's not by works. It's only by faith. Therefore, if it's not by our works, we don't have anything to boast about. I mean, we live in a culture that's so full of boasters. Have you been watching Donald Trump lately? I mean, he's maybe the most talented boaster that we've seen in a long, long time, always boasting about his wealth. If you listen to hip-hop music, you hear musicians boasting all the time about how tough they are and their sexual appeal and all that they're going to do. You listen to athletes, they're always boasting about the games that they're going to win and how nobody can stop them. For the Christian, it ought to be very different. Understanding justification brings you to a place that you realize you've got nothing to boast about. A boasting Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. (laughs) And yet, let's just acknowledge it. We all have this temptation to boast. We all have this temptation to appeal to something in ourselves. As a reason for God to save us or love us or reward us, what is it for you? Your occupation? You have this wonderful job? Are you boasting in your occupation? Boasting in your well-behaved children? Boasting in your reputation, your... Bible knowledge, the denomination that you belong to, your clean and upright life, what what is it that you boast in? What Paul is saying is you don't have anything to boast in except for one thing, Christ and Him crucified. (laughs) That's what Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians ought to be the most humble people on earth. And it's the doctrine of justification that really gets us to that place. Second thing, justification applied, no discrimination. Verse 29, is God the God of Jews only? Nope. He, is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. There was much in the way of ethnic dispute and tension between Jews and Gentiles and what Paul says here is that God is the God of both. Once again, if we're not relying on anything in us, if justification is totally outside of us, then there's nothing about our race or our age or our education or our gender or our income that gives us any reason to feel superior to anybody else. And to get justification is to get past a lot of the discrimination problems that we have in our country and sadly in the church as well. Justification puts us all on the exact same level, sinners needing a righteousness outside of us that only Christ provides. No discrimination, and then lastly, no lawlessness, that is no... We can't conclude from this that therefore, because we're justified by faith alone, that we can just now do whatever we want. Because at the end, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. The law is upheld. The law is upheld. Even though obeying the law doesn't justify us, nonetheless, the law is upheld. How is that? Because... Jesus obeyed the law for us, and His death on the cross, He took the penalty of the law for us, and that frees us from being dependent on the law. That frees us from being afraid of the law. That frees us from thinking that the law has anything against us, because it doesn't. And so now we're free to love the law and obey it. Gladly and willingly. John Bunyan said this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly. and gives us wings. Do others like you, friends? I I don't know. I can't answer that question. I can't give you any assurance about whether others in this church like you. But I can assure you that if you place faith in Jesus, that he will offer you Full and complete approval and acceptance. But you must respond. You must respond. You must place faith. Your your parents aren't going to believe for you. Your pastor's not going to believe for you. God's not going to believe for you. You have to trust in Christ, and I encourage you to do that and gain this wonderful news that you are justified in His sight.